and it's kind of anemic. <laughs> You may want to go ahead and, and get out your notes from last time so that um, you'll be up to date. I don't hear the rustling of paper. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> getting, a swell, getting a swelled head now. <laughs> and this doesn't come up, Bill. to start with, okay? Lord, anybody that thinks that they can uh, speak a word that's worth hearing apart from the power of the Holy Spirit is, Lord, it's just a fool's errand. So we just pray that you would be here in, in strength and power and grace and mercy and lead us, Lord, into the words that uh, honor you, Lord, apart from you, we're just um, we're just uh, completely undone and unable to to speak anything that's profitable. So we just pray that uh, your name would be glorified in all that we do and say, Lord, and that our hearts would be strangely warmed by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. More than 20 years ago, <clears throat> theologian uh, Elton True Blood, or True Love rather, described America as a cut flower civilization. He argued that our culture is cut off from its Christian roots like a flower cut at the stem. Though the flower will hold its beauty for a time, it's destined to wither and die. And now, a little over two decades later, the bloom has definitely faded, and we can see the petals falling all over the ground, all around the flower. Theodore Dostoevsky wrote in the Brothers Karamazov, and I read this many, many years ago and thoroughly enjoyed it. It would probably take me forever to read it again, but one of the brothers of the Brothers Karamazov said, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. And the plunge into greater and deeper pagan behavior can be traced directly to the fact that today men and women act as if God doesn't exist or if he does exist, he's powerless to accomplish his will. So many deny God's existence and believe everything is permitted, yet they continue to ask questions probing why things are messed up in this world. The problem must be poverty. Maybe it's the lack of education. 
Maybe it's the unjust distribution of wealth or any other, any number of other things. One thing is certain, though, most people know that there is a problem. But this is a rather strange thing to say if you don't believe in the God of the Bible. The predominant worldview in the West these days seems to be secular, and secular is defined as a belief where God has nothing to do with anything. He's not present. He's not a factor. It pretty much rejects any religious faith of any kind. Basically, they believe that in the beginning, as we said last week, are the particles. In the beginning of the molecules. Not in the beginning, God. But how do impersonal, uncaring, and indifferent particles give meaning to anything? If your answer is society gives meaning and it defines right and wrong, then the question is which society? And in what period of time? Ultimately, somebody in society has to decide, so we ask, what set of values, by what set of values do they decide? If there's no biblical God, then we end up staring into an endless black hole that's black and full of despair. But like we saw a few weeks ago, the Christian worldview tells us how things began, where everything came from, and what ultimate reality is like. It tells us that God is personal, all-powerful, all-loving and wise, near to us, and that from all eternity he has a plan for us and for the creation that he made. But we're still left with the problem that something has gone wrong with the world. God didn't create it the way it is now. Genesis tells us that God declared his creation as good, except at the end of the sixth day, after he created man, when he called it very good. There are two things we need to remember about man. In one way, we're like everything else in the created world. Yet in another way, we're completely unlike everything else in the created world. We're made of physical things. We have a physical body. That means we've got limitations. Philosophers called it being contingent. Contingent means we're dependent on something else. We're we're dependent on something else for our existence, for our survival, for our well-being, for all that we are. We're not little gods. We didn't begin like little gods, and we're not going to end up like little gods. We're creatures from the beginning, and we're always going to be creatures. We're not God in physical bodies. That's not the Christian worldview. That is not reality. We depend and owe our existence to God who made us and sustains us at every moment in our lives. 
But that doesn't mean we're not special, though. There is more to us than just physical bodies. We're made of physical stuff, but we're also made of non-spiritual stuff, a soul. We bear the mark of God. We've been imprinted with his very image. And that's what makes man special. And this is what makes man worth protecting. Whether we're young, old, sick, strong, weak, poor, rich, or whatever, we're valuable because we're made in the image of God. And this is where the Christian worldview is dramatically different from all the rest. It answers the question, why? It tells us why man is different, why he's valuable and special in a way that can never change. We bear the mark of God. He's made us like himself, and that's never going to change. Even though we're marred at the present, the image of God is indelibly printed on us. That's why those who believe the Christian story rescued children in the first century that the Romans threw away. That's why Christians in the 19th century sought to abolish slavery why they established orphanages and hospitals, why missionaries travel around the world, and why they hold the unborn valuable. Man didn't give man value. God did. But sadly, though man is made in God's image, he's also broken. Something's gone wrong with us. The evil in the world is not something out there, it's in us. C.K. Chesterton pointed out many years ago that original sin is the one doctrine of Christianity that can actually be proven. And that ought to be easy to see. Find someone that never sinned in the history of the world, apart from Jesus. If, 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 man is basically good, then you're bound to be able to find some group somewhere that's good. It doesn't exist. We're not machines that need to be fixed. We're transgressors that need to be forgiven. The brokenness in this world starts with the brokenness in us. We haven't made mistakes we've sinned. The Christian story, the Christian worldview, says that thing says the thing that went wrong with man caused what went wrong with the world. The world is broken because we are broken, and the Christian story tells us how it happened. The story involves a garden, a tree, and a snake. There was a real place at a real time when a real rebellion broke out on the earth. And that rebellion changed everything. It changed us, it changed the world, and everything in it. You know the story. God gave the first man, Adam, a place that was perfectly suited for him. And a woman to be a helpmate to share his life with. 
Don't mess up. God gave him rule over the land and the beast and told him to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue. More than anything else, God gave himself in friendship. Ecclesiastes 3.11 reads, He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In verse 14, the word for eternity, if you go back to, excuse me, in verse 11, it says he's put eternity in the heart. That same word for eternity, just three verses later, is translated <coughs> forever. He's put forever in our hearts. This is from the beginning to the end. The Garden of Eden is the kind of perfect place that our hearts have always longed for. It's an ache in our hearts that remains of the way things used to be. Eternity in our hearts might be evidence of a meaning that's buried deep in the soul of every person of the way things started. Everything began exactly the way it was supposed to be, but change could happen, and it did. There was one single restriction placed on Adam and Eve, on the children by their father. They could eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden but one. Hardly an overbearing restriction. No reason to question it. No inducement to disobey. But there's another player in the story. It's an intruder a destroyer, a deceiver, an enemy of the creator, a terrible liar. He tells Adam and Eve the king can't be trusted, that his love is not genuine, his word's not true. He whispers, make your own rules, find your own way, be like God. Man hesitates and then he gives in to the lie, the deception. The issue is not just that man doesn't keep the rules. This is a test of trust, of love for a father, of faithfulness to a friend. And this one act of disobedience changes everything. The kingdom is torn apart by rebellion And this rebellion does not bring freedom, it brings brokenness. It brings guilt, it brings slavery, and it brings struggle. Adam and Eve struggle with each other. Man is meant to govern the ground, but now the ground fights back with thorns and briars. Women now struggle to bear children in labor and pain. And in the end, after a lifetime of struggle, of trials, of tears, the battle ends in death, and man goes back to the dust. But there's more than one kind of death. 
Adam and Eve are dead toward God. They're cut off from a thriving spiritual life that only friendship with God can give. They're no longer fit for paradise and they're expelled from his presence. Death spreads through all mankind. Brother kills brother and then boasts about how many they've killed. With every generation, rebellion increases. The darkness spreads. One thoughtless act of sin and self-will has changed the world forever. There are basically two objections to this part of the story, the Christian story. The first concerns the serpent, Satan in disguise. Are we really saying that there's a devil who is evil and tempts man? And that's exactly what we're saying. Jesus certainly believed the devil and his demons were real. And he met and defeated them on a regular basis. This is a story about a world a worldwide war with the devil and with his opposing army. We're clearly told that man's conflict in the visible realm is linked to a battle going on in the invisible, but very real realm. And the things we do not see matter more than the things that we do see. In reality, there are certain, there are creatures lurking in the dark. They really do exist. There really are trolls under the bridge, and there really are monsters beneath the bed. The devil is not a cartoon character. He's deeply evil. He gains ground by craftiness and secrecy, and he destroys and we ignore or underestimate him at our peril. The second objection to this part of the story is, what does this have to do with me? I wasn't in the garden. I didn't eat the fruit. Why should I suffer from what someone else did? Adam was the father and representative of all man that came after him. As a result of his rebellion, his sin became a part of him and his corrupt moral nature was passed on to all of his descendants. Our genes, our DNA, our nature was in Adam and we were born with a sin nature. It's been said many times, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. That's why David cries out in Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Childbirth is not sinful. And David didn't sin when he was first born. Rather, like all of us, he was born with a sin nature. Children are not born innocent, and only later become sinners. Children need salvation too. 
Now there's a problem that seems to be insurmountable. There seems to be an immovable boulder in the Christian story. And it has to do with evil. Unlike any other worldviews, the Christian worldview takes this dilemma and faces it head on. Some worldviews see evil as an illusion which quickly falls unless you live a cave apart from everyone else. I remember someone asked R.C. Sproul a question at a panel one time. said, I have a friend that believes evil is an illusion and that it's not real. How do I convince him that evil is real? R.C. Sproul answered real quickly. He said, steal his wallet. (laughs) That will convince you real quickly that evil is real. Other worldviews say everything is the way that it should be since evolution brings about survival of the fittest. And after after all, molecules and particles, they don't really have any preference for good or evil, if you can really bring up that subject at all when you're talking about particles and molecules. For the Christian worldview, the Christian story, the question becomes, for many, why doesn't an entirely strong and completely good God keep evil out of his kingdom? Why didn't he keep the rebellion out in the first place? Why doesn't he stop all the pain and suffering and injustice running wild in the earth? You'll hear it a lot. Maybe he's not all-powerful, or if he's all-powerful, maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he's indifferent. First of all, we ought to remember that if this seems like an unsolvable problem for the Christian, getting rid of God really doesn't change anything for the atheist. The problem you get rid of God, the problem's still there. The world's still broken. It hasn't fixed anything. And really, for the materialist, it's a terrible question to be asked to begin with. Because if you believe in that, then there's really no such thing as a right way for things to be. What determines right if there's no God? Molecules? Well, that's their answer. So what about the statement like, a good God would always prevent evil if he's able to do so? Well, a more accurate way of asking the question would be to say, or a statement would be, a good God always prevents suffering and evil unless he has a good reason to allow it. Sometimes God might allow evil or suffering to prevent a greater evil or suffering to take place. That doesn't mean evil is good, but that there may be a good reason to allow bad things. God created man in his own image to have an intimate friendship 
with him. Now, God did not need companions. A perfect being doesn't need anything to be completely satisfied and entirely happy. He created man because he wanted to share his happiness, his joy, and his delight with others. God made wonderful things, but only in man did he create a being that could make free and moral choices. And in order to share God's happiness, man would have to be able to share God's goodness. So God created man morally innocent, without sin, intending man to choose obedience. And so, to grow in goodness and virtue, becoming more like God himself, both in holiness and happiness. If friendship with God and sharing in his virtues is a good thing, then making man who could enjoy these things, is also good, even if it comes with a liability. The liability is the freedom to choose. Since happiness depends on goodness, man had the freedom to choose the good, but he also had the freedom to choose the bad. Put simply, something good made something bad possible, though not inevitable. Precisely because God is good, he made a creature that could go bad. No freedom, no growth in goodness. No growth in goodness, no growth in happiness. Moral freedom means the possibility of doing good and evil. If you remove the possibility, you remove the freedom. It would be impossible for God to create man with genuine moral liberty without any possibility that man could use it for evil. It's like trying to create a round square. It's logically impossible. God's goodness made possible a world that could have badness. Most people would probably agree that human freedom, along with the happiness that it can bring, is a good thing, even with the liabilities. But is it good enough reason to allow all the world's evil in the first place? Was it worth the risk? This is not a question that man's able to answer in his own capacity. We can only know that God, who knows the beginning from the end, says yes. He knew from the beginning that Adam would sin, and he made provision for that happening. If God had a good reason, and that's not a good way to put it, we should say, since God had a good reason... To allow, to allow every instance of evil, and since he knew there would be greater good in the world in the long run than if he had not given man freedom to begin with, then the question's answered. God is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. Here's what we know. Man did not use his freedom well. 
instead of using their freedom to honor God, they used it to rebel. Parents give children boundaries for a reason. They have understanding as to how things work that children don't. If they disobey, they're like liable to break something. It might be a vase, might be a leg, it might be fracturing a valuable relationship, or maybe an entire life. Disobedience destroys, and sometimes the change is so great it can never be repaired. The same is true with God and us. When we disobey Him, we break something valuable. And that's the key to understanding the problem with evil. When God's people disobeyed their Heavenly Father, they changed everything. When Adam and Eve rebelled against the King of the universe, they broke the whole world. That's why there's evil and suffering. Bad things happen in a world that's broken. Every evil that attacks us is the result of rejecting God's rule. It's what the story calls sin. Sin is what has caused a broken world. And a broken world produces broken people and warped circumstances. The Christian view not only explains the evil that people do, it predicts it. One, or our world is exactly the kind of world we would expect it to be if the story is true and not just some sort of religious wishful thinking. The story tells us exactly what's going to happen and it's just exactly the way it says. And no other story even comes close. But the story's not over yet. Evil did not catch God by surprise. And that's part three, part four, and part five. Galatians 4, 3 and 4 read, When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. One last thing. The brothers John and Charles Wesley tried everything they could think of to get into the kingdom of God, all sorts of works. They even went to faraway lands as missionaries in an attempt to achieve salvation. And then, independently of each other, but within a few days of each other, both of them, John and Charles Wesley, were brought to Christ. John Wesley was converted as he stood outside the Aldersgate Meeting House in London and heard Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans being read. Charles was convicted as he was reading Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on Galatians. They decided they would no longer celebrate or mark their earthly birthdays, and instead they would celebrate the occasion of their conversions. To mark his first new birthday, Charles wrote a hymn, and can it be?
by him to the mystery and wonder of salvation. In one of the stanzas, and I love this hymn, he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. Our rose went forth and followed thee. Now that's me. And I suspect that you too. You were in a dungeon and the the fire flamed through. Your eyes were open, you were set free, the chains fell off. And that's what the story is about as we go forth. The chains fall off. We see the wrath of God on sin but we see the provision to restore man, to bring him back to a place greater than where he was before. We see the enemy defeated, God vindicated, and man set free.